may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. I want to talk to you today about the test of discipleship, the test of being a disciple of Jesus. We all know that the purpose of the test is, uh, of a test, is to test our understanding. Um, and so we have somebody in our household who's getting ready to take the driver's test for the state of Missouri. And so in order to do that, you have to pass a certain, I think it's 70% or so of, of the questions. And then that qualifies you based on, hey, I understand some of the rules of the road to begin to, to drive. If you're in the medical field, you have to take a test. Uh, my wife took a nursing exam after nursing school just recently, and that qualified her. It showed that she had basic understanding to be a nurse. In our diocese, we have exams that we give to people who want to be deacons or priests. And so there's some basic content. They need to know uh, the theology and practice of what it means to be a deacon and priest in our diocese, to test their understanding, and that qualifies them to, uh, to move forward in, in that vocation. Well, what is the test of a disciple of Christ? What is the test of being a disciple of Christ? Well, Jesus uh, tells us here, doesn't he, in Matthew 16, verse 24, after Peter had rebuked Jesus, Jesus had said that he must suffer. Peter has, just before this, by the Spirit of God, said that, confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And now Jesus is saying the Christ must suffer. Peter resists that, putting those two things together, the the Christ, the Messiah, and suffering, and so he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him. And he says, this is satanic, Peter, because I must go to Jerusalem, and I must suffer, and if you're going to be my follower, you must follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him, here's the test, deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. Do you really, he's saying to his disciples, do you really understand what it entails to follow me? Now, following Jesus starts with Jesus' call. He takes the initiative. He calls to us. He summons people to himself graciously. And we see that in the beginning of the Gospels where Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John, who were fishermen. And he said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will do a work in you. I will shape you so that you will become a fisher of men, useful in my kingdom. So the call starts with Jesus, the call to follow him. 
And we can look back in our lives, I'm sure many of us, and we can see and think how Jesus called to us. The call went to us. He summoned us to himself. He summoned us through our family if we are raised in a Christian home with godly parents. He summons us through the church. And that's a great blessing. And we can thank God for it if we were raised, if we have that heritage of faith. Because it's no accident. God is the one who appoints us the times and seasons in which we live. So we can thank God if we have that heritage. We can thank God there are some who were not raised in a Christian home or in the church. But Jesus called to them through the circumstances of their life or through a friend. And they they heard the summons. Follow me. And they began to follow. And so, Jesus takes the initiative. It's His grace that calls to us. Jesus doesn't set up in, in, in Galilee a kind of talent show and say, hey, you know, if you're good enough, you come and show me what you got. And then maybe, uh, no, He summons, He calls just based on His grace. But then this test comes. The test is put before us. Will we... Uh, demonstrate that we really understand what it is to be a disciple. I mean, learning to follow Jesus is, I think, a progressive thing and a continual thing. And now Jesus puts forward, after he's called these disciples, they've been with him some time, do you really understand what this means? And will you demonstrate what you, that, that you understand what it truly means to be a disciple? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So let's think about what this means, denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. Maybe we'll start with what it doesn't mean because it can often be misunderstood or misapplied, this idea of self-denial and taking up your cross. It certainly does not mean that we are to hate ourselves. It certainly does not mean that we are to consider ourselves worthless and to beat ourselves up over our failings and our sins. It doesn't mean that. We are not to hate what God loves. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. That includes you. God demonstrated his love for us in this, Romans 5. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated that he loves you by sending his son to die for you. Uh, The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1 talks about how we have been redeemed, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's how valuable we are to God. That he gave his son, and his son spilt his precious blood for us. And so it cannot mean, to deny ourselves and take up our cross cannot mean that we are to hate ourselves or to think of ourselves as worthless or to beat ourselves up because of our failings. It doesn't mean self-hatred. And it doesn't mean self-harm. Some Christians in the past, and even in the present today, They take a passage like this and the way they apply it is that they try to prove through extreme spiritual discipline and extreme ascetic practices that 
that they are crucifying their flesh and that they're worthy of, of God's acceptance and grace somehow. And so there's been examples of this throughout Christian history of people who literally beat themselves with whips. And in the early church, some monks would go out into the desert and they would stay on these platforms high up in the air for years, in some cases, exposed to the elements to prove that they were somehow worthy to earn some sort of acceptance, to subdue the flesh, to abase themselves. It led to self-harm. And that surely is not what Jesus calls us to. What Jesus is, is calling us to is simply this. That our self does not become the center of our life, but he does. Uh, to be able to say like the Apostle Paul did in Galatians uh, 2.20, it's no longer I who live. It's no longer the self that's in the driver's seat. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The one who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm going to live for him from now on. The one who loved me, the one who went to the cross, took up his cross for me, I'm going to live for him. So, he's at the center, not myself. This is a great challenge in our day, isn't it? Because I think you could call this the age of the self. I mean, this is the age of the selfie, right? People talk about self-improvement, self-expression. Some people even talk about, believe it or not, foolishly, the divine self. So this is the age of the self. But uh, there's a tension, isn't there? Because even though this is the age of the self, there are people of goodwill and, and, and people who are made in the image of God, which is every single one of us. We know that selfishness is not something to be praised. It's not a virtue, but that self-sacrifice is. And we see that, too, in our culture. But that, that's something noble. And so we have this tension in our culture. But in the midst of this, in this culture today that prizes the self, Jesus turns to us and says that we are to forsake ourselves, deny ourselves, and take up our cross and follow him. And I like how Hans Bayer, who um, teaches at Covenant Seminary, in one of his books, he talks about discipleship and this call to self-denial and the goal of it all. And he, he writes this in one of his books. The goal of discipleship is to be fully redeemed, transformed, and living as radiant letters to others of God's unmerited mercy and healing. And then he makes this point, which this is what caught my attention. He said the goal, <clears throat> he said the challenge of self-denial and carrying one's cross is not the goal, not in itself, but it's a means to the goal, which is this, to be free for Christ, to be free for service, to Christ, you see. Take up your cross and then what? Follow me. Because you can't follow, obviously, Jesus if you're following yourself, if you haven't given yourself to Jesus, if you haven't died to selfish ambition. So, um, this is the call that we are all to hear Put him at the center rather than ourselves. And what, what does this mean practically then? 
What are some ways in which disciples of Christ are called to do this in their everyday life? Well, we see it in uh, the Apostle Paul's writings even, even today, don't we? In the passage from Romans here, here's one way we die to ourselves and live for Christ. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual work, act of worship. What do we do? What we do with our bodies is to be pleasing to God and in service to God. Or, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the value system of this world, the world that prizes power and possessions and money and fame and pleasure above all. Do not be conformed to that value system, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is through the word of Christ that we're conformed to Christ rather than to the world. And so we're to be transformed by that. Now, it goes on. Uh, again, we can apply this to this, this idea of discipleship, of dying to ourselves and taking up the cross. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And here he begins to talk about ministry in the church and the gifts that we have been given by God to use for building up the body of Christ. And he says, now, as you go into that, as we think about this, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Because you can use ministry, and here I'm preaching to myself, you can use ministry for selfish ambition and to try to seek glory for yourself and to twist it into a crown rather than a cross. And that is something that Jesus clearly calls us to repudiate. That was the problem with the disciples is they were looking forward to a kingdom of glory. Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, can I sit at your right hand and can I, and can I sit at your left hand? They were clamoring for that. And Jesus says, no, that's not what this is about. So these are some ways that we can apply this to our lives. Do not conform to the value system of the world. Do not use your position for glory. Do not follow, as John Stott says in his writing on this, do not follow Christ, but instead, or excuse me, do not follow the crowd, but follow Christ. Do not compromise your loyalty to Christ. There might be relationships that could pull you away from Christ. There might be things at work and among friends that would pull you away from loyalty to Christ, if so. That calls, that's a cross decision. Uh, that's a difficult decision. And Christ would call us to distance ourselves from things and relationships that would pull us away from Him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says that forgiving other people in the community of those who've been forgiven by Christ, the cross is about forgiveness. Christ calls us to forgive one another. And this is one way that we don't hang on to the sin that's been uh, against us, but we release that. That's another way that we can take up our cross and follow Jesus, follow His example.
submitting our will to Christ in prayer, following Christ who said, not my will, but your will be done in every aspect of our life. Another way to follow Jesus and take up our cross. Not being ashamed of Jesus. In the parallel passage in Luke, Jesus is explicit about that. After he says these things about taking up the cross and following him, he says that if you are ashamed of me and my words, here's how he puts it, if you're ashamed of the Son of Man and his words, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes uh, to glory with his uh, holy angels. And so, being not ashamed of Christ is another way to follow him here, to take up our cross, to be willing to bear shame, to be willing to bear ridicule for Christ. Now, none of this is possible, friends. In our strength, because we are too weak, because of our flesh, which is very concerned about what other people think, and looking good in the eyes of man, rather than the eyes of God. And so it's not possible for us to do this in our own strength. I'll give you an example of this. I was flying back from um, Craig's ordination service in Denver, and I was on the plane. This was uh, Wednesday morning. And uh, I'd been kind of working on my sermon as I, as I found snatches of time uh, when I was there in Denver. But when I was on the airplane, I thought, well, i got to buckle down and it's... I'm already behind, so I need to work on this sermon about following Jesus and taking up your cross. And uh, I fly southwest, so I don't know if it's like this on other planes, but you're just really squeezed in there southwest. You can hardly move without bumping into the person next to you. You really you can't. <laughs> and so I had the middle seat, uh, so that was my lot, uh, to take the middle seat between two folks, two strangers, obviously. I'm thinking, well, I got to get to work on my sermon, and that means I got to get my Bible out. This this Bible here was in my backpack, and I had just this little hesitation. I'm ashamed to say, if I take this thing out on, and they're sitting right next to me, what will they think? Is this some Jesus freak here? Is this guy going to start talking to me about Jesus? I had this moment of hesitation. I thought, well, I could use my phone, and it would be not as conspicuous. Yeah. Use my Bible app on my phone. And then uh, I was thinking about Jesus' words. And uh, if you're ashamed of me before men, this is part of what it, I mean, such a little stupid thing. That, I mean, there are people throughout history who've died for the name of Christ. There are people now who are dying for Christ. There are people now who are on trial. There's people on trial in Finland right now for standing for Christ when it comes to sexuality. And they're being accused of hate crime. And here I was afraid to take this out. So I had to quickly repent and take the Bible out. And uh, they didn't scatter and leave. Well, there was nowhere for them to go. (laughs) But sometimes that can lead to conversations. It didn't in that case. But that's just an example that we cannot do this in our own strength. We need the grace of God. We need the grace of Christ to be able to follow 
the one who died for us. In order to die for him, we need his grace. I mean, that's what happened with the disciples, isn't it? They, they actually, they proved that this is impossible because when he was arrested, they all abandoned him. And then it wasn't until after they witnessed his crucifixion and saw his dying love for them and after they encountered him risen and after they were filled with the Spirit that they were able to do this, to really be a disciple. It takes the work of Christ. It takes the work of the Spirit. And I think it's a daily thing to take up our cross and follow him and ask him for the grace of this, for this. And then Jesus promises us, friends, here is why it's worth it to do this. He promises that this is the way of actually true life, that we will find our life, what we're really looking for, if we do this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come, he says, with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. See, the, the, the works, what we do, reveal who we are. We're not saved by our works, but they reveal who we are. Are we a person of faith in Christ? Is that faith demonstrated by following Him in these ways? Jesus promises that if we follow Him down this path of crucifixion, we will join Him in resurrection, in new life. In new life. And so that's an encouragement to us. For those of us, sometimes we might wonder, is this really worth it? Is the sacrifice worth it? And Jesus says, this is the way to real life. I'm reminded of uh, Pascal, a French philosopher and mathematician, and he talked about this wager that we are called to make. It's Pascal's wager. Maybe you've heard about this. But he said, everybody has to make this wager in life. And And... One wager, one bet is that this world is all there is. That's door number one. And so you can go, you can go through door number one, and what you're guaranteed is only something that's finite. It's only temporary. And so you can, you can have the world, as Jesus talks about here, you can have all the world and you can enjoy it, but it's finite. It's only for a time. Um, and then there's door number two, and that is eternal life that Christ promises, eternal life that begins now and goes on forever, a relationship with God, fellowship with him. And he says, you can go down this door. Now, he says, if you're uh, wrong about that, if you go down door number two, open up door number two and walk down there, and at the end of your life, after life, you, there's nothing. Um, he said, at the very least, what you've done is you've, you've lived a virtuous life by God's, you know, seeking to live a virtuous and noble life. And that's a good life. Um, if you're right, 
you gain heaven. You gain infinite happiness if you go down door number two. If you have said that this life is all there is and you've gone down door number one and you're wrong, then you lose infinite happiness and you're separated from God forever. And so Pascal said the better wager is to wager on what Jesus is saying here. And there are good reasons to believe that it's true, that he really is the Messiah and that he really can give new life, true life, here and now and forever. And so this is, this is a great encouragement to those of us who, when we hear the things of the world, the values of the world, and the, we feel the pull of the things of the world, to hear again Jesus' call, no, this is the way of true life and everlasting life. I'm reminded of, in conclusion here, of something that Dr. Paul Brand wrote about his mother. His mother, who was a medical missionary, and Paul Brand was a medical missionary, and he worked with... Uh, patients who had leprosy, and he talks about how his mother, who he called Granny, I don't know how he got away with that, he called his mother Granny, how she stayed in India into her mid-90s, and there were times where she was having failing health, and he would try to get her to come back to the United States to be with him, and um, she had <clears throat> she had fractured her vertebrae and ribs, he says, and she had spinal nerve pressure and pain, and a, she had a brain concussion at one point. She was, she was falling apart, and he said, well, why don't you come, you know, you've served your time here. Why don't you come back home with, with me? And she said, well, uh, who else is going to do the work that I'm doing? She was up in an Indian mountain range. She was preaching. She was binding up wounds. She was pulling people's teeth, and she said, uh, she said what is the use of preserving my old body if it's not going to be used for God? So I'm staying here. So she stayed year after year after year. And uh, here was a lady, he said, in her youth was a beautiful lady. But over time, she began to wear down and um, she was no longer the beautiful lady that she once was. But there was something beautiful that was happening in her as she gave herself to serving these people in India. Uh, she was experiencing the life of Christ. She, she wasn't the kind of person that the world values that says, hey, this is somebody that we, uh, that we want to be. Um, not beautiful, not extremely talented, but somebody who was giving her gifts to Jesus and serving these people. And she, he says this, that this is, he said, my last and visual memory of my mother. Um, she is sitting on a low stone wall that circles the village with people pressing in from all sides. They are listening to all she has to say about Jesus. Heads are nodding in encouragement and deep searching questions come from the crowds. Her eyes are shining. Standing beside her, I can see what she must be seeing through failing eyes. Faces gazing up with her with absolute trust and affection on one they have grown to love. One they have grown to love. They are looking at a wrinkled face. But somehow, to them she's beautiful. Why? Because the image of God is shining through her like a beacon. Uh, that's a testimony of what God can do as we give our lives to Him in this way. 
And so that's the test, the cross. Again, I think it's something that Christ puts before us time and time again. Will we hear his call? What does that mean for you today, to hear and heed the call of Christ? Let's pray and think about that. I'll take just a minute of silence and ask God to speak to us about that. What does it mean for me at this season of my life to deny myself, take up the cross, and follow him, the one who died for me and promises new life? Help us, Lord Christ, to follow you, to obey these words. Apart from your grace, we do not have the ability to do this. But with your grace, we can follow you and we can experience this new life. We thank you for the life that you have given us. And we trust you for a greater understanding of what it means to be transformed into your image and likeness as we suffer the death of self, and raised to new life. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen.